Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. Today we're going to be studying the prophet Amos. Here in America, we say Amos. And we're going to be studying this prophet chronologically, picking up from where we left off, left off many months ago. We have studied the prophet Obadiah, then the prophet Yoel, then the prophet Jonah, and the next prophet chronologically is Amos. After him is going to come Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. And as we study these prophets, I think it's really important to study them chronologically. And you're going to see the same message come forth from all of these prophets, and they're going to have consistency in what they are saying. And one prophet is building upon the message of the prior prophet. And as we go through, you'll see that these prophets do not disagree, but they're saying the same thing, preaching the same message with the same conclusions. Now, Amos is from a city called Tekoa, and it's south of Jerusalem, about 11 miles. He is going to be a prophet from the southern kingdom, Judah, to the northern kingdom, Israel. And the main subject is social injustice. And so today we're going to be talking about, from a biblical perspective, what is social justice and what is social injustice from the eyes of God not what we're experiencing today in the 21st century here in the Western culture. They have everything backwards here today. But we're going to be looking at social justice from God's eyes. And when we look up at the prophet Amos, and he's prophesying to the north, he's prophesying to a kingdom that is in complete apostasy. In 930 B.C., God split the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, Judah, which was Davidic, that would continue the promises of what God promised to David and his descendants, or that to David and the covenant that God had with David about a kingdom being established forever, and a kingdom that was not Davidic for the north called Israel, ten tribes, through Jeroboam. When we get to Amos, we're dealing with Jeroboam, but not the first one, but the second one who is going to reign for about 40 years, from 793 all the way until 753 B.C. And then in the southern kingdom, you have Uzziah, Uzziah, from about 792 all the way until 740 B.C. In fact, when we get to Isaiah, it's in the year of Uzziah's death that the calling comes to Isaiah, and he answers that calling in 740 B.C., So when we look at these two kings, it is a time of prosperity and a time of peace for the southern kingdom, Judah, and for the northern kingdom, Israel. The southern kingdom has Jerusalem and the temple, and it is Davidic. However, there is major sin and apostasy that is happening in the southern kingdom. When you look up to the northern kingdom, it was always a kingdom that was apostate. From the very beginning, Jeroboam I set up two golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan, up in the north. 
And this was to keep the Israelites from going down to the south to the temple in Jerusalem where they would not have divided loyalties. And Jeroboam wanted them to have complete loyalty to his kingdom. And so what are they doing with these golden calves? They are making an image to represent the God of Israel. That's what we see in Exodus chapter 32, when Moses is up on the mountain, the Mount of Sinai, and he's receiving the law. Part of the law is do not make any image to represent who God is. Well, the Israelites are down below in the valley, and they're making an image to represent God. They want something that they can see, something that they can visualize, that they can bring their offerings to, and say that this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. God will not be represented by anything in creation. God will only be represented by His Son, who is the image of the invisible God. So when we look at the northern kingdom for 208 years, it was apostate. It never had one righteous king. It never had one time of repentance back to God. It never had a time in which they were tearing down the high places that were uh, in honor of idols and to the gods of the nations around them. It was completely apostate for 208 years. Yet at the same time, this was a time of peace and prosperity. So in the north, they're feeling comfortable. In the south, they are feeling comfortable. It's a time of security. But it is a false security because both nations are rebelling against their God. Now, God is going to raise up Amos, going to raise him up to go preach to the north. He's also going to have prophecies against the nations around them. He's also going to have prophecies against Judah. But his focus is upon the north and the judgment that is coming in the near future from the Assyrians. And so this is the context of this prophecy. Also, Amos is not coming from a royal background like Isaiah. He is not coming from a uh, priestly background like Jeremiah. He, his father wasn't a prophet, and he's not a prophet. That was not his background. He's a, he's a shepherd. He's a herdsman. He's an agricultural worker. He's a pruner of sycamore trees. This is his background in the past, but then God's going to raise him up to start prophesying. It is not something that he learned. It's not something he grew up uh, learning how to do this. This is the word of Lord, the word of the Lord coming to his life to speak to the nations around, to Judah, but more specifically to the nation of Israel in the north. That God's judgment is coming against them. It's interesting how, when you have financial prosperity how sometimes you think that's a stamp of approval on your actions. And that seems to be the case with the northern kingdom, especially. They were so prosperous, they couldn't even see what they were involved in. Yes, and they had had times in which they had had conflict. And when we get to chapter 4, God's going to reveal, this was my doing to get your attention, but you did not return back to me. And so they would If I would put it in a contemporary setting of today, it would be very similar to America, that we have peace, we have uh, prosperity, but every once in a while, we'll have this tragedy that hits, 
but people are not returning back to the Lord. They come back uh, temporarily with uh, maybe it shakes them a little bit, but not a true returning back to God from the heart. There's a hurricane, there's a tornado, there's a terrorist attack, Wall Street. Uh, there is a collapse at Wall Street temporarily, and sometimes God is trying to get our attention, but we're not returning back to God. This is very similar to the northern kingdom. In chapter 4, you're going to see how God says, I did this, 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 but you did not return back to me. But overall, it is a time of peace and prosperity, and in those times, people tend to forget about God. God, is there anything that you see throughout all of these prophets? Is there any reason? So you, you mentioned that Amos, you know, is from the south prophesying to the north. Is that something you see throughout the prophets that's sort of a, a trend with them? Or is this just, it's just as random, sort of like, you know, Isaiah was royal, Jeremiah was, you know, priestly, and, and Amos was just a sheep herder and sort of a blue-collar worker. But is there any anything you see where a reason why God takes someone from you know, the South and, and puts them to prophesy to the North and vice versa? Well, being from the South, all good things come from the South, right? <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm teasing. I would say there is something to the understanding that in the South, the Southern Kingdom is part of God's plan of salvation for the world, not just for Israel. And it was Davidic, and you are going to see more people coming from the Southern kingdom, prophesying against the south, prophesying against the north, and you're going to see this understanding of God's word coming from Jerusalem. However, a greater principle for me is this. We're living in a culture today, well, you're not from my community, so you cannot speak to me. Well, that's not the word of God. God can raise up anybody at any time to speak to anyone. God can raise up someone from the north to speak to the south, from the south to speak to the north, from someone to the, from the north to speak to Nineveh, someone from uh, the northern kingdom to speak to Edom. It, it does not matter. God can choose anybody at any time to speak his word. We're living in a culture where you're not from my ethnicity. You don't understand me. You cannot speak. A word we use here in the West, baloney. Because God speaks however God wants to speak, and God can speak from one community to another community, and because God is God. However, most of the time we're seeing men that are being used by God from the south that is speaking to the south and speaking to the north here. And I think it is because of the Davidic kingdom that's in the south, and they have a more understanding of God's word in the south than they do in the north. Think about this. If you grew up in a culture that was completely pagan, then it would be very hard to see a generation come up that is seeking God in the right way. Yeah, that just reminds me a little bit of, you know, you hear, you hear David Wilkerson's story of, you know, this country pastor that, you know, did such great work with these New York City gang members, you know, totally couldn't relate to them, had no clue what their lifestyle was like. And I think we have to be careful to ourselves to not look for people that we think are relating to us that understand us and, and that's the main focus and also ministry wise too if you if you're called into ministry you know you don't think you have to go to the group that you know the best because a lot of times God will use you to go somebody that you just totally don't relate to or have no clue 
you know, what's going on with him, but he, he may give you a word. So, yeah, I just think our, our natural mind, and especially here in the West, we always want, oh, they, someone needs to know what I'm going through. They need to know the struggle or vice versa. We need to know their struggles so, so we can speak into their life or speak what God's trying to say to them. But it doesn't have to be that way. I agree fully. Just be used by God, and God can speak through anybody, anytime, to any situation. And this is extremely important, that we never forget that basic truth. And that's what we see all the way through God's Word. And we're also just thinking of Isaiah's life. The Lord was looking for someone. He said, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So he also has to have a willing vessel. Yes, and we see that in Isaiah, a general call, and then in Jeremiah, we see a specific call. And so both are applicable to anybody at any time. There are times in which God says, who's going to represent me? Who's going to go and take this word that I am giving and that that I'm bringing? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. It's more of a general call. However, Jeremiah Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations. And you see a very specific call in Jeremiah's life. Both are truth. They both are used by God. And this is what I want to say. God is God, and God can do what God wants to do. He is a sovereign God. And so Amos is a southerner preaching to the north. And the North may not really like that, but get over it. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you very mad, but it will set you free. And just because he's from the South doesn't mean that he cannot speak for God. So let's jump into this. We've looked at the date from 760 to 750. Amos, who is a uh, herdsman, he works in agriculture, he's a sheep herder, He is someone that's not from a ministry background, but God has chosen him. His father was not a prophet. He's not a prophet. We'll see that in chapter 7. Yet, God's going to use him to prophesy. This is the first time in his whole life, I believe, that God is using him to be a prophet, to prophesy his word to the north. In chapters 1 and 2 that we're going to summarize, and we're going to go through this a little bit, We're going to see that he's going to prophesy to the nations around Judah and Israel. He's going around from the north, the south, the east, and the west, and he's going to talk about these nations and their sin. And then we're going to come to chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. He's going to speak to Judah, but in chapter 2, verses 6 on, He is going to come specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel. And that is his bullseye right there of what he's going to be focusing upon. But let's read the first two verses of chapter 1. And Laura, can you read these verses? Sure. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, And in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake, he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. 
you see in verse 2 the essence of his message that is about to come. It is a message that in Zion, the southern kingdom, and in Carmel, in the north, that there is judgment that is coming. And he is prophesying, it gives the understanding of the time frame of when he is prophesying two years before the earthquake. We do not know the date of this earthquake, but we do know the years of these two kings, of Uzziah in the south and of Jeroboam the second in the north. And so verse 2 is giving us the essence of what's about to take place. There is going to be devastation. There is going to be judgment in the north and in the south. And remember, when the Assyrians come, they not only destroy the north, they will destroy 46 cities in the south. And Jerusalem is going to be kept by God from the Assyrians. But later on, the Babylonians will come and God will allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. In verses 3 through 5, we're going to be dealing with Damascus and Aram. The kingdom of Aram and the citadel of Aram is Damascus. And this is a kingdom to the north. Let me read verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now, people debate, what does this mean? Because eight times he's going to bring the same statement. And what I believe that it is giving us a picture is that this is perpetual sin. This is multiplied sin. It goes on. It continues from generation to generation. So for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because this is continuing, the judgment of God will come against Damascus. Because they threshed Gilead. Gilead is east of the Jordan River, part of Israel, with implements of sharp iron. So because of their sin and how they have come against Israel, God's going to bring judgment against them. And you see this in verses 3 through 5. Now let's go to verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. And in verses 6 through 8, it's God's judgment against Gaza, not just Gaza, but four of the cities of the Philistines. So what we're dealing with in these verses is God's judgment that he's speaking through Amos to the Philistines. But what's interesting, Goth, the fifth city, is not mentioned. So the fifth city could be a possibility of this time not being under the authority of the Philistines. Because you have Gaza, you have Ashdod, you have Ashkelon, and you have Ekron. But Goth, where Goliath came from, is not mentioned as one of the cities of the Philistines. Do you think it could have been destroyed at that point? It could have been destroyed or it could have been under the authority of Judah at this time. But we do not see Goth mentioned at this point. It was always the five cities of the Philistines. That's the reason why David picked up five stones. That's the reason why when they returned the Ark of the Covenant, they took the five golden rats and the five, what was it, hemorrhoids. I think it's translated tumors golden tumors, and returned representing those five cities 
but only four cities are mentioned here. But what God is saying, you're coming under judgment. And what is interesting, the Philistines are going to be wiped out later on completely by the Babylonians, but they will be affected by the Assyrians that are coming through as well. When we go on from verses 9 and 10, we are seeing Tyre, the city of Tyre that's at the north. Now, remember, Gaza is in the south. And then we looked at Damascus, which is in the north, but Tyre is in the northwest, and then the city of Damascus is more northeast. Verses 9 and 10, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So here we're looking at God's judgment coming against Tyre because of what they did to an entire population that was delivered up to Edom. And uh, so he's going to send fire upon Tyre and will consume her citadels. And we're going to see this fulfilled through the Assyrians as well as they come. Look at verses 11 and 12. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sore while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. Again, God remembers the sin of Edom and what he has done, and God's judgment will come upon Edom. What I'm trying to do here is for everyone to see that these sins of the past God has remembered, and God's judgment is coming against them. Also, if you look at these places on a map, you're seeing it's all surrounding Israel, north, south, east, and west. Right. Edom is southeast of the Dead Sea. So it is east. And then we're going to go to two more nations that are east of Israel. Look at verse 13. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So Ammon is east, more northeast or directly east from Israel. God's remembering what they have done in the past and how they have come against the people of God and all of their terror and all of their sin and all of the things that they have done in the past. God has remembered, but remember the phrase, it continues, it's multiplied, it's never stopped, and now God's about to bring judgment through the Assyrians. Now let's go to chapter 2, another nation that is east, that is in between Ammon and Edom, Moab. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom in lime. So these are past transgressions. Instead of going through each one of these transgressions and what it means, what I want you all to understand and to see, God remembers the sin that the people have never repented of these sins, and it has continued three times, and for a fourth, it's continuing, it's multiplying from generation to generation, and God has seen their sin, and he's going to bring judgment. 
So you see this in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3. Now that brings us to chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. And now these are the nations around, from the east, the north, the south, from the west. We are seeing these nations that God has remembered their sin. But next, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, it's going to be about Judah, their sin. And let's look at that. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. There are going to be major cities that will be on fire because they have not kept the law of God and they have walked away from the things that God taught their forefathers in the past. They have not continued in the ways of the Lord. And remember, 46 cities will be destroyed by the Assyrians. When the northern kingdom is destroyed, 46 cities of the south will be destroyed as well. Just um, two quick thoughts here. I was thinking when you were saying about, you know, God remembering these sins and, and seeing that and then executing judgment on them. You know, these were sins against other pagan nations. And I think as followers of Christ, sometimes we just think that God's here to equate justice for people who follow him. But no, he's doing this for... You know, he's seeing wrongs that these pagan nations did to other pagan nations, you know, because I think God just cares about, God cares about people and humanity, and they're not following him, but he still sees that they are doing wrong to another people, even though they're not his people called by his name. So I thought that was interesting to see that. And then I also wanted to ask you about, you know, what's the significance contextually do you think of him going through the pagan nations first before he gets to Israel? Because sometimes I think I've seen it where a lot of times he'll list Israel first and call them out and say, here's what, and then he'll go to the pagan nations. So here Amos obviously very specifically goes to these pagan nations first, talks about their judgment, then he goes to Israel. Yes, it's a great question. And remember this, sin is sin. Jonah that precedes Amos here was sent by God to Nineveh that's not in a covenant relationship with God to preach judgment, and yet they repent. God is going to destroy that city, that nation, because of its sin. Sin is sin. God abhors sin. It goes against his character, and sin always destroys. And so God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach judgment, yet they repented. So, yes, sin is sin. And also, a lot of these nations, as we go through it and as you read through these actions in which they did, was against the people of God. Many times they're coming against Judah, they're coming against Israel, they're coming against a people that should be in a covenant relationship with God, even though they're apostate many times, yet God remembers that. And so why is Amos starting with the nations around and then coming to Israel? Dr. Randall Smith says it in this way, and I agree with it. It's kind of like a bullseye when you're looking at a target Starting with the outside targets, he's dealing with their sin, and then it's coming down to what is in the center and what is the focus of God's message is coming to Israel, the northern kingdom. So many times, I agree, it starts with Judah, it starts with Israel, it talks about their sin, and then later on about the nations around them. 
even the nations that God is using to bring his judgment, like the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God says, but woe to you, Assyria, to Babylon, my judgment, even though you're the instrument in my hand to bring forth my judgment against my people, I will bring judgment against you. So here I see it more like a bullseye. Here you're dealing with the Philistines, you're dealing with Tyre, you're dealing with Damascus, you're dealing with Edom, Moab, Ammon, you're dealing with all these nations around, but the focal of his prophecy is coming to Israel, the northern kingdom. Now let's come to Israel, the northern kingdom. And sometimes when the name Israel is used, it's referring to both Judah and Israel and sometimes to the northern kingdom. When we get to chapter 3, it's going to be all the tribes of Israel, the whole house of Israel. But right now in verses 6 and following, it is dealing with the northern kingdom. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless. Also turn aside the way of the humble, and a man and his father resort to the same girl, or assembly the same harlot or temple prostitute, in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, which is against the law of God. You cannot take your garments and give it as a down payment for a debt. If you look at Exodus chapter 22, And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So in verse 8, they're taking advantage of people who owe a debt or they have given them a debt and taking their clothes and taking their money and living a life of ease and feasting off of it. Then in chapter 7, we see probably temple prostitution. We see them taking advantage of the humble and those that are helpless, which in the law, you're supposed to help the orphan and the widow and the helpless in the times of their distress. So they're taking advantage of those that are in need and taking opportunity to exploit that and use it for financial gain. This is what is happening in the northern kingdom. This does not represent the character of God. This is not does not represent the law of God. It does not represent the kingdom of God in any way. Let's continue in verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. I believe the Amorite here is a description of Cana, before the Israelites came into the land. It's really talking about the Canaanites, of what he did. And so he's speaking to the northern kingdom, but he's reminding them as he brought Israel within the land of what God did for them. It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Again, a synonym, I believe, for Cana. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, 
and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. He's speaking to the northern kingdom, but he's talking about his faithfulness to Israel. He gave them prophets. He gave his sons to be Nazarites, men that were dedicated to the things of God. Verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine, which was forbidden. They were not to drink of the fruit of the vineyard at all. And you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. And I believe that what this is saying, You shall not preach or prophesy the word of the Lord. There were always false prophets, but they were always preaching peace and prosperity. So he is saying to like the prophets Jeremiah and others, Don't prophesy. These were the Lord's prophets. You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you, as a wagon is weighed down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. What God is saying through Amos to the northern kingdom, to Israel, your day of judgment is coming. Now think about this. This is 760 through 750 BC, time frame. 30 years later in 721, the whole northern kingdom is going to be destroyed. The 10 tribes are going to be destroyed and they will never come back as a kingdom ever again. They will be destroyed forever. You also sense the way he described them as such mighty warriors, the pride that they had that no one can defeat us. We're strong. We're good on horseback. All these things, you really sense that the pride is going to finally be broken. Yes, and they are going to be taken away with fish hooks. And we're going to see this with the cows of Bashan in chapter 4. And we're going to see this prophecy against them. Let's continue here. Chapter 3. We're 35 minutes and we've covered two chapters. We've never done that before. But we're giving you the essence of these eight judgments here in chapters 1 and 2. Talking about the nations around, coming to Judah, now coming to the northern kingdom of Israel, and reminding them about God's faithfulness to the nation as a whole, Israel, but how judgment is coming against them. Let's come to chapter 3. All the tribes are guilty of sin. Verse 1, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. They were chosen by God to be a light to the nations, to build a house to the nations, to be a priesthood to the nations. Yet they are sinning against God. Think about the northern kingdom building two golden calves to represent the God of Israel. Verse 3, all of these answers are going to be no in verses 3, 4, and 5. And then you're going to see questions that bring forth a yes answer. Verse 3, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? 
Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? All the answers to these is no, to these questions. Verse 6, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? Yes. Let's continue. If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Yes. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Verse 9, proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod, that's the Philistines, and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. The mountains of Samaria is the northern kingdom. So I want you to go to the leading cities of Egypt and the leading cities of the Philistines. Bring them to the mountains of Samaria here in the northern kingdom and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. What he is saying, go get these cities. I want you to bring them up to the north and see the oppression and see the sin of the north is greater than what you have in your cities. This is what I believe God is saying. So he is saying this judgment is coming. God is getting ready to do something. And when you see this, You've got to know that God's judgment is about to come and his prophecy will be revealed and his prophecy of judgment is coming to the north. Yeah, and I just um, verse 7 sort of stuck out to me, you know, unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets, you know, God does nothing in secret. And, you know, I think that's true throughout the Bible. That's true today. Yeah, and I think we just have to listen when we're hearing that from people that are speaking the Word of God and speaking truth because God's grace and mercy gives you time to repent. He gives you time to look back, and sometimes it's going to execute judgment. He's decided it, but that remnant that's following him that's still wanting to do what's right, you know, he can at least let you know about it and make a way of escape or, or just a heads up that something's going to happen. And yeah, that just kind of stood out to me that that God will give you warning. It's not going to be by surprise if you are in tune with Him, if you are in your Word, if you're praying and fasting and, and seeking Him. You're going to get a heads up when He's going to do something that's going to affect you. Yes, and God is trying to bring the people to repentance. So what He reveals His secret counsel to His servants, the prophets. Look at verse 8. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This is the word of the Lord that God wants to get his word through Amos. Next is going to come Hosea. Next is going to come Isaiah. And they are going to prophesy to the northern kingdom the same message. And it's going to be coming to the mountains of Samaria. So go down to the Philistines. Go down to the Egyptians. Bring them to the mountains of Samaria and see the oppression, the sin in the midst of the northern kingdom and look at verse 10. But they do not know how to do what is right. This is how far they have drifted into apostasy. They don't even know how to do what is right. Three times, and now four, I will not revoke my punishment. It has gone on and on and on and on. Now is a time of judgment that is coming. 
but they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. These who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. It is everywhere. It saturates the whole land, every citadel. They do not know how to do what is right. If you reduce God to a golden calf, even though you still maintain the religious structures all around, how can you have the character of God? It cannot produce the character of God. Got real quick in case someone doesn't know what a citadel is. Like myself, how would you define? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Alan, just a country boy from Tennessee. No, a citadel. Words are defined by the way that they're used in context. A citadel can mean a capital, the leading city, or it can mean the leading cities of a nation of a place. So, a citadel here could be, in a plural sense, the leading places in the north. You have Bethel, you have Don, you have Samaria, you have other citadels which are in the north. Mighty cities, fortified cities that represent the northern kingdom. So it's almost saying the core of your country with these major cities, this is what's being represented coming from you. Right. It's what holds the nation together. So let's continue in verse 11. Verses 11 through 15 is a prophecy of the Assyrians that are coming devastation that is coming. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you, and your citadels will be looted. Thus saith the Lord, Yahweh, just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel dwelling in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. What an imagery of what's coming to them. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, this is God's punishment that is coming to them. I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off, and they will fall onto the ground. I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. What this is saying is picturing the prosperity. They have a summer house, and they have a winter house. They have houses of ivory. Great prosperity is going to come down when God's judgment comes against the northern kingdom. Now, let's flow into chapter 4, and some of the ladies are going to get upset about this, but I want you to think about a prophet that is not politically correct. If he prophesied today in this way, you think about in churches how upset the ladies would be. But he's going to come against the ladies in the north, and he's going to call them the cows of Bashan. And let's read these verses. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. It would be like him saying, Hear this word, you fat ladies in the north. This is what he is saying. Who are on the mountain of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring now that we may drink. So they're ordering their husbands around. Now, when we talk about cows, let's think about 
the context here. Jeroboam I put the golden calf in Bethel and Don. These were citadels, religious centers in the north, representing the religious life of the northern kingdom, an image to represent the God of Israel. Jeroboam I did this so that they wouldn't go to Jerusalem to the temple in the south, and they wouldn't have divided loyalties. This is Jeroboam II. So the cows represent masters. The word Baal is a word in Hebrew that means husband. So the masters of the wives are their husbands. But in a different context, it means the lords, the gods, the masters in the north. Here is represented in the northern kingdom by the golden calves. But who are the cows of Bashan in the north? It is the women. It is the wives. They're telling their husbands, go get us something to drink. They're ordering their husbands around. And what Amos is saying, this is not the way that it should be, you cows of Bashan. You're ordering your husbands around and look at your mentality. You oppress the poor and you crush the needy. You take advantage of others and you get fatter and fatter and more power and more influence, and you tell your husbands, go get me something to drink. This is completely opposite of the character of God and the design of God for the family, for the husband and the wife, and how it should be. Yeah, you almost you get a, an implied sense of pride, I think, with that statement, cows of Bashan, you know, because like you said, the cows, the calves are being worshipped, but that's almost as ridiculous as worshipping a calf, you know, it's like... You're looking at this cow and thinking it's a master, and you know the same way these ladies are, you know, with this pride, this arrogance, thinking right. that they're in charge, that they're supposed to be running the show. Um, but he, yeah, and he's calling them, you know, cows of Bashan. It's like it's a weird double wording there. It's almost like it, they probably would see it as a positive, maybe. You know, if you said that, like they could think if you didn't say it in this way. He's confronting their sin. Yeah. Yes. If you called a lady a cow of Bashan, the cow of Alabama, the cow of New York <laughs> here in America, they're thinking, wow, you're calling me fat and you're calling me lazy yeah. and all these kind of things. But you think about if you said that in India, being wealthy, being fat is considered healthy and well and prosperous. And the cow is worshipped. The cow in the northern kingdom of Israel is worshipped. So what I think Amos is saying is you who think that you're the masters and the leaders and you are uh, on top of everything, you crush the needy, you take advantage of the poor, and you say to your husbands, go get me a drink. They're really the ones in charge. And he's coming against their diva mentality how we would say it in the West, coming against their mentality that I'm over my husband's and I'm in charge and I will take care of everyone else and I want my summer house and my winter house and I want the best of the best and get out of my way. And if I don't get it, I will crush you. This is what he is speaking against. Yeah, I'm just thinking modern day and there's there's a lot of them now. Not You don't single out just one, but these, you know, so many of these reality television shows and you know, the, the different people that are represented, yeah, and just the the evil and the hate, and, and, you know, it's all about me, 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 and do this for me, and, yeah, it's pretty 
pretty incredible that that was happening back in this time, you know, where Amos is calling this out and we're seeing this today in 2020. Human nature does not change. It just get repackaged, defined a little bit differently, seen in a different context, but it's the same stuff over and over again. So think about chapters one and two for three transgressions and for four. It just continues to go on. And many times it gets out of control until God's judgment comes against them. And the ones really in charge in the northern kingdom, I feel, the ones that really have the power and authority are the cows of Bashan. Who are they? The women have taken control, and Amos is speaking against them. You have arrogance, you have pride, but let's see the judgment that God is going to speak to them. Verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness... Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. He is speaking about a devastation that is coming upon them, that they're going to be trying to get through the walls to save their lives. They're going to be cast to Harmon, and they're going to see devastation and destruction and death, and many of them are going to be marched with fish hooks on their noses, on their lips, meat hooks, and taken off into captivity, not to be cows of Bashan anymore, but they're going to be humbled and they're going to be slaves in the future. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiplied transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings, make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. So they're bringing offerings, they're doing things that represent formalities and forms within the law, but they are living like their gods, like their masters, like their idols up into the in the north, and but they still maintain sacrifices, tithing, bringing offerings, free will offerings. They're going through the motions of the traditions, not so much the traditions, but the scriptures for the formalities and the forms of what they need to do but they're living like the devil every day. So look at verses 6 through 11 here. This is very unique here. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all of your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. God has caused a time of famine to come from time to time. I believe this is what he is saying, but they didn't return. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the part not rained on would dry up. I gave them a glimpse of what was going to take place, withholding some rain here but giving rain on another place. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with a scorching wind and mildew, 
and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. This is God causing natural calamities to come to wake them up, but yet they're not returning. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. There are times he withdrew his protection, and cities were attacked, and young men were killed, yet they didn't return to the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. He allowed cities to be destroyed. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O house of Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. What he is saying to the northern kingdom, I gave you glimpses of what was about to take place. I caused natural calamities to wake you up, but you did not return. I allowed your cities to be attacked, and your young men were killed, and some of them were like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed, yet you did not return to me. Northern kingdom, Israel, be prepared to meet your God. And what he's talking about is his judgment. His judgment is coming. It is too late. You haven't returned, and God has made up his mind. Prepare to meet your God. My judgment is coming against you. It's interesting how in our Western mindset, we don't see natural calamities or these things as God trying to shake us or wake us up. But a lot of cultures, that's the first thing they think. If there's a fire or a cyclone or something, they think that God is angry, and it kind of shakes them, thinking it's something supernatural. Yes. In India, the first thought to a person in India, when a natural calamity takes place, what did we do? How did we dishonor our gods? That's their mindset. What caused this, and what do we need to do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? In a Western culture, we have explained everything away. And so when a hurricane comes through and destroys city after city, and we think, oh, we'll just rebuild, it'll be okay. And that wasn't God, that's just a natural thing that happens from time to time. When a tornado comes through, a twister, and destroys, and 200 people are killed, or 500 people are killed, oh, we will rebuild, we have insurance, and that's just something that takes place. When the stock market collapses, what goes up must come down, so... It, it is something that we explain away, and then it happens over and over and over again, and we get comfortable with it, and we see the rebuilding that takes place. But I would say what Amos is saying to the northern kingdom is a message for America today. It's a message for the Western culture. Prepare to meet your God. I did warn you. I did send calamities. You were attacked. did take place. 5,000 people were killed. The churches were filled the next day, but a month later, it's back to where it was. 
So prepare to meet your God. There is a day that is coming that's going to be so devastating if we continue in sin that the judgment of God will hit this nation and it will never, ever be the same. This is what Amos is speaking to Israel, the northern kingdom, and I believe it's the same message for us today. Yeah, just I'm thinking about the beginning of this and how Amos is the sheep herder, farmer, you know, and you just think... uh, a country boy from Alabama getting up in front of Parliament, you know, telling the ladies in Parliament and calling them cows of Bashan, prepare to meet your God. I mean, it's quite incredible that, you know, he's not even any background in prophesying or, yeah, he's just a country boy and can imagine what they're thinking when he's coming, telling them this. It's like, who are you to, to tell me what to do? I'm here. I'm comfortable in my summer, my winter home. But it's such a powerful prophecy. I mean, the, the words at the end of that, what God's speaking through him, yeah, for him to get up and say that is pretty... Pretty amazing. Yes, I agree. And uh, they would come unglued here. If he said something like that, it would just uh, bring about such a wrath from them against this individual. Lock him up, put him away, throw away the key. That would be their response. But God always has the last word. And what God is speaking through Amos is going to come true. It's going to be picked up by Hosea. It's going to be picked up by Isaiah, and they're going to preach the same message, and it will be fulfilled. If it is the word of the Lord, it will be fulfilled. One last thought, as we've covered the first four chapters here in one hour, we've never done this before, is that all the false prophets are preaching peace and prosperity. As we go through these prophets, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, When a people and a nation, a family and an individual is living in sin, the only prayer that God is willing to listen to is a prayer of repentance. And this nation is not repenting. The nations around are not repenting. Judah is not repenting. And now it's time to prepare to meet their God. And so what we have to do in the Western culture that is running away from God We have to come back to repentance that leads us back to the Messiah that brought God's salvation and ask for God's forgiveness and to live a life of forgiveness and to live a life that is reflecting God's character and producing the fruit of God's Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, forgive us, forgive us of our sins, forgive us of the sins of our nations, O God, and let us truly listen to the word that you spoke through Amos the prophet, and let us take it to heart. And God, bring us on our knees before you, crying out for repentance for our lives, our families, our states, our nations, O God, that is running away from you in such arrogance that we're cows of Bashan, believing that we're above everybody else and, and we're over everybody else. But God, you can humble us in a second. And Lord, let us live a life of humility before you. God, that is our prayer. God, bring us to the point that we need to be. And we pray this in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at integrity global missions. If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening.
Have a blessed day.